Well, if you're just joining us for the first time today or on live stream, you may not realize this, but this is a momentous day in the life of our church today in Stafford, a project we've been working on for the last 15 months kicks off. And Pillar Stafford is meeting right now for the first time ever as a church. And so that's exciting. It was awesome to be able to gather last week here and to be able to see them off and pray over them. And it's as exciting to be able to have all of you with us as we look to this new season of ministry. We're at the front end of uh, of our year together. We really see August as the beginning in a lot of ways uh, of our time together. And so I know a lot of you are just coming into town uh, with military PCS moves and we're glad that you're, uh, t- you've taken the time to be with us today. If you're online, thank you for joining us. Um, we're just going to dig into 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and continue our series on temptation. So you may not be familiar with the name Florence Chadwick. But in the 1950s, she was a well-known swimmer. She was well-known as the world's most prolific female marathon swimmer. She swam the English Channel in both directions, 21.6 miles. Well, in 1952, she set out to be the first woman to swim from Catalina Island to mainland California. That's a distance of 20.1 miles, and as of 1952, no woman had ever completed the swim. She prepared, and when the time came for the swim, the weather was cooler than normal, and it was foggy, so much so that they could hardly see the boats that were around her during the swim. After almost 15 hours of swimming, she begged to quit. Her mother was cheering her on from the boat, telling her that she was confident that she could make it, that she could finish the swim. But eventually she gave up. When she got to the boat, she discovered she was less than a half mile from the shore. In an interview the next day, she said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Listen, sometimes endurance is a matter of being able to see the truth when you're surrounded by fog. If you notice in the text we're looking at this morning, resisting temptation, as we continue to think about how do we deal with temptation? How do we find victory? How do we learn to feast on Christ and flee from temptation? That temptation, resisting temptation, is a matter of endurance. The end of verse 13 tells us what sort of the appropriate goal is that in trusting in the Lord, we may be able to endure it. Temptation is often a matter of endurance. So, you could say that Paul is using this passage really to prepare us for enduring obedience. That is, that is a sort of obedience that's not easily overtaken by the fog of temptation. In order to do so, he is opposing some ideas... Some ideas that undermine this kind of endurance. Ideas that undermine the sort of endurance that we need and fog up our vision in key moments and cause us to quit rather than, rather than resist in the fight against sin. Now, these lies, which we're going to see in a moment, may not seem like immediate threats, but they're under the surface and carried with us. And unless we deal with them, they will make enduring obedience impossible. 
and regularly result in us being overtaken by sin. And so really in this text, there are four lies that we're going to see that he counters and he clarifies so that we don't become fogged up when we need to endure. And I want to look at those four lies this morning. The first one is this. The first lie that will undermine endurance in temptation is, I am past that. The lie that I am past that. Look in the text in verse 12. In verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Verse 12 brings this general section of teaching into focus, and particularly focuses us on the experience of temptation while under trial. The first thing he tells us is something that we've been emphasizing throughout this series, but he gives fresh language to. He says, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Or as we've said before, watch and pray. Keep watch in times of temptation. Be on guard. Listen, if you don't understand the need to take heed, it will undermine your readiness for enduring obedience. Too often we consider ourselves past the point of certain poor decisions in life. And here he says, he says, if we embrace this lie, we will not be prepared when temptation comes knocking at the door. But the scriptures would warn us to think otherwise. That there is a real danger that we're never past a particular sin. There's nothing that we couldn't fall back into. We've not arrived. I'm not past that. There's a story from uh, Virgil's Aeneid, the old Greek writer that tells of how the Greeks finally defeated the city of Troy. It's probably familiar to many of you. After a 10-year siege, they built a wooden horse, pretended to leave it as a gift of surrender as they loaded up their ships and sailed away in defeat. The people of Troy, believing that they were past the threat and reveling in their victory as the ships sailed away, wheeled the horse into the city, and that night the Greek soldiers who were hiding inside conquered the city of Troy. Well, Paul is warning us not to allow our pride to become the Trojan horse that rolls our greatest moments of temptation into our life. Thinking that we are past the threat. The word here, take heed, that we read in English in our translation is actually a word for sight. It's the Greek word blepeto, which means to see, or it's a word for seeing in Greek. So really he's saying, watch out. You know, if you played baseball growing up, you know that when the foul ball starts heading for the crowd, everybody yells. No, they don't do that. It's not watch out. They don't say watch out. They say heads up. And I always thought that was weird because I think we should probably put our heads down and cover them with our arms. But heads up is a way of saying, be aware, get your eyes open, danger is coming. The word take heed is sort of like heads up. It's saying, remain watchful, pay attention, don't lose sight of what is possible. The person who is overconfident about their ability to handle temptation of a certain type, Paul is saying that person needs to take a better look. A better look maybe in the mirror at 
our own vulnerabilities. You see, arrogance, which is what he means here in verse 12, anyone who thinks he stands. I mean, we can just imagine it, right? Confidence and our ability to stand up straight, to remain standing, to not give in. He says that arrogance is a danger. That arrogance makes us blind to seeing our own vulnerabilities. So how do I know if I'm harboring this lie? I am past that. Well, here's a few things that I thought of. If you see, uh, you can just test yourself. If you see another person who has fallen into sin and you're judgmental rather than aware of the danger in your own life, take heed. If you've convinced yourself you can handle being around certain places, people, substances, and circumstances of temptation that previously overtook you, take heed. If you're ignoring boundaries you previously set for your own protection, take heed. If you've isolated yourself from the people that speak candidly and truthfully to you about your vulnerabilities to sin, take heed. The first lie we have to be careful of is, I'm past that. But there's a second one that we see here that I think really focuses on the center of this text, and it's the lie, I have an exception. I have an exception, a lie that often creeps up in our souls when we face temptation over a period of time is, I have an exception. Let me show you what I mean here in the text. As we begin verse 13, we're at what might be the most memorable part of the text and its richest idea. Let me read it to you in a couple of different English translations so we can feel the flavor of it. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. That's the New American Standard. The NIV says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. Christian Standard Bible says no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But I think the New Living Translation gives us some real plain language to us that can really lock in what Paul is saying here. It says this. It says the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. You say that again. Ask yourself if you believe it. The temptations in your life are no different than what others experience. This is what Paul is saying. You can imagine why he would be saying that, can't you? Because we all look for the exceptional excuse. Yeah, but you don't know about my situation. You don't know what I've had to endure. You don't know how difficult it's been on me. Listen, I mean, it's kind of funny in maybe a little lighter way. During COVID, we found all kinds of excuses, right? You know, COVID was hard on us, so we had to eat more ice cream, right? COVID was hard, so binge-watching another season of something on Netflix, it's what we had to do, isn't it? It was the only way we could survive. You know, that, that's, a, that's a less consequential way of doing this. We figure out what, you know, we start grading. We say, like, this thing was hard for me. I'm experiencing it as difficult. Therefore, I have an exception to sort of let my guard down in a situation. It's interesting that as Paul is helping the Corinthian church look at their temptations and the challenges of enduring the self-denial that is called for in obedience to God, he wants to counter the idea that somehow the circumstances under which they're being called to obey and the level of temptation they're facing is somehow exceptional. 
Let me just say it plain. Y'all ain't special, friends. You know, we love, you know, we, we had this conversation one time around the table at my dinner, uh, you know, at, at dinner at home, and you can ask my kids to explain the story. But you ain't special is something we say every now and then. Now listen, I get it. We're all unique in God's eyes. There's no one, there's no one like you. You know, no one experiences life quite the way you do, the same set of circumstances. Like uniqueness is a real thing. So I want to acknowledge that. But when it comes to temptation, Satan's been serving up the same flavors for as long as man's been alive. And what you're facing and potentially what you're giving into isn't special. He's, he's saying here that, that that's what everybody faces. That, that temptation to say, I have an exception. You don't know what I've been through. I can give in here. I can give ground in this area. That's a lie that will fog you up when you need to endure. And so Paul wants to make sure that we realize that the temptations we are facing are garden variety temptations. And, and I think it changes our mindset when we begin to realize that that is the case because we, we look around and go, we can fight this. I'm not just going to cave. Nothing will undermine your endurance faster than telling yourself that nobody else has ever had to face such a difficult set of circumstances and still obey the Lord. It's a convenient little lie, isn't it? It helps us warm up to the idea that giving in is sort of what we deserve. What's expected. We tell ourselves that indulging in some sort of sinful comfort is only reasonable considering all that we've gone through. Certainly, given the circumstances, God doesn't expect me to be on my game and paying attention to my spiritual well-being. Listen now, here's the warning. Don't mistake your weakness for uniqueness. Others have endured the temptation. Others have fought the fight. Others are fighting the fight. So sometimes when we're surrendering, we need to be reminded... One, we're not alone in it, but you can get up and keep walking. So that's the lie. I have an exception. But there's a third one that I see in the text. It's this. It's, I am incapable. I'm incapable. I think our third lie particularly helps us address the areas of sin that have seemed dominant in our lives. And maybe you're here today and you would look and you would say, you know, there's some particular areas where I'm being overrun. And... You've come to the conclusion in those areas you're incapable of obedience. And Paul, Paul is just sort of undermining all of these lies that fog us up and cause us to quit when we're less than a half mile from the shore. You see, these are the things that are down in there that, that fog up our vision and we convince ourselves, I am incapable. We're often tempted to believe the lie that we're incapable of resisting temptation in a certain area when we've caved over and over and over and not been faithful. But look what he says. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. If you're the kind of person that underlines in your Bible, you might want to underline that word ability. Beyond your ability, that means in some way that we're not going to tease out all the details of today. God even is filtering your temptations. 
Now, he's got purposes for allowing us to go through the process of learning to endure and learning to obey and sorting out what's really valuable to us and revealing our weakness. God has purposes that we aren't prepared to fully understand this morning. But one thing we see here is that God is filtering our experiences in such a way that God never allows us into a circumstance of temptation that we lack the ability to deal with. Now, another way of saying that is God's not to blame for your sin. Another way to say that is everyone else isn't to blame for your sin. That, 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 that we need to wrestle with the reality that we grab for excuses so quickly. We want every excuse possible so that we don't have to face where we're at in our relationship with God. Here's what I think is important to understand. It's easier to say, I am incapable than it is to say, I really don't want to walk with God. today. It's easier to say I'm incapable than I really like my sin more than I trust what God has for me is good. The lie, I am incapable, is about taking a matter that really comes down to resolve and convincing ourselves it's a permanent state of reality. This is what we do and wrestling with temptation every now and then in my house the remote disappears maybe that happens to you or maybe this is a form of temptation that only I face but every now and then the remote disappears and it's regularly when I want to watch something when I ask where it is I find out from some of my family members who will remain nameless that they looked and they can't find it they just can't it's not possible and it sounds like a statement about what they're able to do, right? We've looked, it's not possible, I'm not able to find it, I can't do it. So every now and then when I hear that, I offer money. <laughs> like, all right, $10 to the first one who brings me the remote. And you know, it's amazing that all of a sudden their abilities rise to the occasion. <laughs> and we discover I can't really mean, meant I won't. That's what Paul's dealing with here. The temptation we have to say, I, I'm incapable, that's why this happens, I'm just going to keep caving, I'm done fighting against it. Sometimes our attitude toward temptation are a little like looking for the remote when we don't really care to watch anything. It's easier just to say, I can't find the remote than change our plans for the moment and put the focus on figuring it out. But Paul wants to shut down that lie and convince me to look elsewhere for a solution and look deeper for some genuine motivation. You know, in the text, he says it plainly there in the middle of verse 13. God, who is faithful, does not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able. And we should take note of that. Here, we discover that the temptation we actually experience never reaches a point where it's past our ability to be obedient. For a second, that may seem demoralizing to you. I mean, it's like, are you serious? I've been able all along. But can you, can you think for a moment what this says? Specifically, Paul is speaking to Christians who are fighting against sin here. And he's saying, you are no longer slaves. You see, I am incapable is a way of saying I'm still chained. I'm still chained to that sin that owned me. I am incapable is a way of saying that the door is locked and there's no way out. I am incapable is a way of saying that, it's, that, that I am not free. 
But what he says here is a glorious thing and a glorious promise that we discover in God's word because of the power of the Holy Spirit that rests in us. There is never a time in our life where when we face temptation, we're not capable of being obedient. There is a time when we're not willing to pay the cost. But there's never a time when we're not capable. Now that may seem demoralizing, but let's think about how this helps us. You don't endure and continue in a task that is a guaranteed failure. It is also easy to replace I won't with I can't. But consider what this passage is saying. In any given isolated moment of temptation, you're not being tempted beyond your ability. You may be experiencing temptation beyond your level of devotion, but it isn't beyond your ability. You may be experiencing temptation beyond your love for Christ, but it isn't beyond your ability. You may be experiencing temptation that exposes the false picture of commitment that you have sold to yourself, but it's not beyond your ability. That means that the first step out of this lie is humility. God is faithful, meaning God is tending to your life and growth and spiritual discovery and strengthening you in such a way that he has no interest of you being guaranteed with defeat. He is faithful and the temptation you experience is not beyond your ability and it's time to start looking at where the real failure points are and get honest if we'll receive humbly that we haven't been as willing as we would like to present ourselves. We'll be amazed at what happens in the fight to endure. Well, that's three lies. I said there were four. There's a last one. And it's this. I have no help. I have no help. Verse, three and, or verse 13 ends with these words. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Here we see that our hope in the midst of all of this is not in our ability alone. I think think one of the things that you could walk away from here is as we've talked about the fact that we're not incapable of obedience, that you would think that you alone are the one who is fighting against your temptation. You see, what's here, actually what he says is you are not alone. You know, I, I often, for, for a long time I heard that and maybe you're like me and you're like, oh man, I've got to find the way of escape. There's been times where I'm facing temptation. I'm like, where's the door? Where's the escape hatch? You know, like it feels like pressure, you know, I, it, like somebody handed me a Rubik's cube, you know, because I've never watched the videos and if you handed me a Rubik's cube and that was what I had to do to survive right now is I've got to figure that thing out, I would throw it across the room. Figuring out how to unlock it, how to get it done, how to do that. Some of you are like, oh, that's really easy. But, but you know, when you, don't, when you feel like the pressure is on for you to understand the puzzle, you miss the point of the passage. You know, over the last 10 years, these escape rooms have become a big thing, right? Where you're locked inside and it's all up to you to figure it out. And I got to be honest, I hate those things. I mean, if you want my life to be miserable, ask me to go with you to an escape room. (laughs) The only ones I've ever enjoyed are the ones my daughter makes in our backyard, but that's a whole other story. But, you know, you're in there, and you've got, there's all this stuff going on, and somehow you're supposed to be able to put the pieces together to get out, and some of you may be good at it. I'm not. It just feels stressful and fearful. But... 
You know, it's nice when somebody just comes in and opens the door, right? Take a closer look at the passage. With the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. You know, the, the passage here is reminding us that we're not alone in the midst of temptation. That what we really need is to draw near to God. That the response to temptation is that we draw near to God and we walk with Him. And do you know that Jesus can faithfully walk you out of temptation even when you think you're locked away? That the answer isn't just your ingenuity or wit or strength. It is nearness to God. As we walk with God, He has the ability to show us the way out. He is the one who provides the way of escape. It's not simply that we have to find the way of escape as though it's some mystery. It is not some complex solution like solving a Rubik's Cube. It's a provision from God. Our confidence to remain steadfast when tempted is really rooted in our confidence that God, who is faithful, is with us and that God provides ways of escape in the midst of temptation. Walking with God means walking through the midst of temptation and knowing that He is a provider for us. When we think we have no chance, listen, we are not alone in our temptation. We are not prisoners to our weaknesses. We are no longer slaves to the master of sin. Jesus Himself holds the keys to our life and our freedom. And He is the one who said, if the Son sets you free, you're truly free. So I think a great deal of our hope in dealing with temptation is learning to feast on Christ. Learning to draw near to Him in the powerful moments of life where we're tempted by things that are less glorious, less promising, less rooted in the enduring eternal love of God. In those moments we have to learn to trust the promise of Jesus. That he's our good shepherd who brings us through the valley of the shadow of death, who can prepare a table even in the presence of our enemies to feed and nourish us in ways that we think we won't have. For whom he can promise to us, surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. You see, the hope for finding escape in the midst of temptation is feasting with the king and walking with him as He causes His goodness and mercy to follow us all the days of our life. Jesus Himself knows the way through the hardship of enduring temptation, and He is present with us, ready to show us the way. The text wants to destroy in us the idea that we're captives to our sin and restore hope that we have a Savior who knows how to lead us in our most difficult moments. The truth is, we've all given up And given in to the power of temptation. We've all experienced the fog of these lives. But listen, Jesus still sympathizes with us. Maybe one of the most amazing things to consider is that as Paul is speaking to the Corinthian believers here, and as those words echo down and speak to us about the ways that we embrace lies and give in to sin, that Jesus sympathizes with us. In our weakness. You know why? Do you know why Jesus sympathizes with us? Because Jesus finished the race without sin. He endured the hardest moment. 
He's in touch with the true nature of temptation, and he's sympathetic to us. He says all of this, listen, to help us, not to shame us. Maybe you've been surrounded by these lies, and as we've been talking about temptation through this series, you've been tempted to fall into sort of a a sense of guilt and shame. Let's not forget what the scriptures point us to for our hope and help. Lift your eyes up to the hills. Where does our help come from? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And that is the message of this passage, that we have help and we are not alone. We're not incapable of obedience. We do not have to buy into the lies that will fog us up and keep us bound in sin because the Savior has come walking through our lives and invites us to keep walking with him. I think it's amazing, honestly, that Jesus who endured sin to its full depths paid the harshness of its price is the one who looks down now sympathetically on us. It says something. It says something about what he understands, about what we face. And so these words are for our hope. And if there's some way today in which the Holy Spirit has pointed out in your life, you've been caving to these lies, God's not bringing that to your awareness to crush you, to discourage you. Jesus sympathizes with where you're at right now. And in his sympathy, he stoops down and he offers help. And he offers hope. Hebrews chapter 4 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast. Let's endure in our confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Listen, those last words say we can have confidence in drawing near to the throne of grace. Let me just speak to you for a moment if you're here today and you know you really don't have a relationship with God. I think what God would have you hear from these words this morning is that no matter where you've been, what you've done, how many times you've caved to the pressures of sin, how much that sin holds you in shame and guilt that you feel from it, that when you turn your eyes and lift your eyes up to the Lord, you find a sympathetic Savior. That Jesus went to the cross so that you could be set free from that sin, so that you could know that you don't have to live as a slave. Jesus paid for your sin so that you would never have to pay for it and so that you could be reconciled in a relationship to God where you know that you have hope and help in every moment. Listen, do you know that? Are you confident today that you have that kind of relationship with God because the only thing standing between you and that kind of relationship is a willingness to open your hands in simple faith, turn from your sin and trust in the Savior who is sympathetic even to your weaknesses. There's no weakness that you've possessed, no failure that has happened to your life that Jesus hasn't paid for and doesn't care to erase and cover with his blood. Today, 
I want to encourage you, if you've allowed yourself to be distant from God because of your shame or guilt over your sin, that you would come to him in simple faith and trust and begin a relationship with him for the first time. You will find welcome around his throne of grace. It's a throne of grace, undeserved favor, where we find mercy. We find forgiveness in our time of need. And listen, today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together and as we come to a close, maybe in your life you have given up the fight against temptation. You've caved and and you haven't been marked by enduring obedience and you're discouraged today. Listen, you need to be reminded. Look at these lies. Examine them in your life and be reminded that today Jesus invites you around his table to know his strength and be reminded that he has not given up on you. He receives those who draw near to his throne of grace. And the reason we end our service in the way of taking the bread in the cup is to remember that God isn't looking upon us because of our ability, but because of Christ's ability. His perfect obedience means that your standing before God is complete. He sees you as righteous through Jesus. And so today, that broken body and that shed blood reminds us that we can keep walking, keep enduring in obedience, and never to give up. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we thank you for this day, and we pray that as we come around your throne of grace, that your Holy Spirit would minister to us personally. Lord, right now, even in this moment, we ask God that you would You would touch our hearts with the reminder we need from your word. Lord, that you would bring correction and fresh strength, willingness to find ways to fight temptation that has overtaken us. Lord, would you give us fresh hope and strength. Lord, as we remember the cross, would you strengthen us as we look to the resolve of Jesus who laid down his life for us. Would you allow it to stir up in us fresh devotion and commitment to you? We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. In a moment, we're going